Welcome to episode 521 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 521 of I Am Talk with Coach John Yesson and Bevan James. Oh, how you going, mate? I am pretty good. Why is that? Pretty warm? It's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's pretty toasty, isn't it? Actually, I'm flying out to France tomorrow. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm, I'm not getting back till Saturday. Yeah. What day, what day I'll wave to you as I fly over yeah. Thailand. Actually, I don't fly over Thailand. I'm going via Hong Kong. I actually, um, funny, when I flew to Thailand, <laughs> 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 because we were still doing the show two weeks ago, basically. Two guys from work are going to a couple from work on the same flight. Oh my goodness. Just by coincidence. Yeah. But they they won't be, I know mean, you're not doing business class. You, no, no. Again, unless someone wants to pay for my business class. Yeah. It's the one, yeah, again, it's the one thing I'd love to do in my life. Mm. But I just can't justify for that many hours mm. that much money. Sitting in a seat. Yeah. Getting a nice seat. And I, and I travel well, so it doesn't bother me. Mm. You know, but yeah. Anyway. I'm Talk is proudly brought to you by Athlinks.com Social networking for endurance athletes Extreme endurance Lactic buffer And our patrons uh, Let's name a few John You're, uh, you're naming them Okay <laughs> yeah, get my file. I'll close my file <gasps> Open your file Okay Do you know what this show is going to be dedicated to Bevan? What's that? It's the extreme weekend I'll go through that in a second okay. There is a ridiculous amount of extreme races going on okay. uh, Adam the King Turner Nick the Admiral or Nick oh, yeah. Nose Rose. Oh, Admiral. Mark the Unpredictable Wiltshire. Nice. Brian Funny Guy Fallon. Funny Guy Fallon. And Adrian Fui Fui Moy. Oh, that's a good nickname. Jombo. Okay, Jombo. Uh, this week's show is a bit different again because we're not in the studios. We're going to do a little bit about what's happening in the races this weekend, but that's pretty much it. Then we've got two interviews. So, first interview. First interview is with Jonas Colting. And for you guys who don't is know Jonas. Is much? Uh, well, that's what we're going to find out. So Jonas did, used to be a Ironman athlete, and he was a very good one. He has a medalist at the ITU World Long Distance Champs a couple of times, I think it was. Also did very well Ironman races. Don't think he ever won an Ironman race, but I remember him going head-to-head with Cameron Brown one year at Ironman New Zealand. They were running for a long portion of the run together. So he was a great Swedish athlete. But also after that, he kind of he's got into to coaching, and also doing some extreme adventures. So he used to come on some epic camps. Yep. Um, but also he was a mean cyclist, wasn't he? No, it was Bjorn. Oh, Bjorn no, was no Jonas was uh, good all round, a good swimmer. I, I never actually met around. Jonas. Didn't you? No, it doesn't. No? Yeah, the years I, I think he may have just. It just kind of, yeah. We kind it might of have been cr- just before you sort of yeah. cracking it big time. Yeah. Uh, but also he did, earlier this year, he actually was over in Thailand. And oh. he, they swam around Phuket. I don't, oh, know, wow. I don't know how long it took them. So Phuket's a little, Phuket's an island. And uh, they swam around that for a bunch of days. Um, but one of the main reasons I wanted to get him on, he's done the Otillo, which is a swim-run race in Sweden. Uh, he's done it at least a couple of times, I think. Uh, so I wanted to get them on to talk a little bit about that and how they how they actually do it. Because I'm coaching a couple of athletes that are doing it this year. They are doing it for fun. But, you know, what are the practicalities around it? Because you kind of can wear a wetsuit, and, but then you can also have a pool boy. Yep. But you've got to carry your running shoes as well. You've got to wear your running shoes. What, what in the swim? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you can either take them off or you can wear them when what you're swimming. Put them in baggies or something, do they? That's what we're going to find out, how the, the Swedish experts do it. Because right. Jonas... Pretty sure, haven't done the interview yet, 
but pretty sure he's won the race again okay. at least once so we'll find out some tips for doing swim run races well there you go um, and then we actually have an interview of a guy called David Galbraith so I this is an interview I did on my other podcast Fitness Behaviour about a month ago and far out I got a little good feedback on it so David Galbraith is one of New Zealand's top sports psychologists um, and yeah mind blowing interview it's quite a long interview I think it goes for about an hour so the show will be quite a long show but it was um, yeah I think you guys will get a lot out of it so you can check that out and if you want if you like that and you want to check out more of my fitness behaviour podcast just go to Bevan James Isles or you can do a search on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use and it should be there so, so this, this weekend Bevan it is crazy the amount of races that are on that are sort of the extreme races tell me so about you John. have the Opland Extreme in Norway you have the Kelp Man. Melina went and did that last year in uh, in Scotland. The Swiss Man Extreme Triathlon. The Austria Extreme Triathlon. So just because they're called extreme, you're calling themselves extreme. So all these races calling themselves extreme. Yes, they are. Do you know my extreme, John? Watch this. Extreme. Oh, he was doing this shit while I was sitting here reading. I was like, "What is he doing oh, over there?" Sensational team. He crosses his arms over. Cross my like an X, and then you do a little fishy flying away like a stream. Extreme. Oh God! Come on! You've got to sell that to Extreme Insurance. We could have got. Oh. We could have invoiced them for thousands of dollars. See, the problem is, John, I did steal it from a TV program in New Zealand. Right. Back in the day, he used to be an extreme cameraman. Extreme cameraman. <laughs> yeah. So you got the Austria Extreme. You got the. You'll love this name. The Schnellflischnis. The Carl, which is in. Uh, Funny how if you just were to be Iceland. immature here. And pl- words like that, and you just put about it in some body parts in particular, what? you could have a lot of fun, couldn't you? You do. Yeah. So the vision behind the Schnellfinish is to combine a tough, long-distance triathlon with the most spectacular nature on earth. Wow. Okay, John, here's a question for a discussion of the week. If you could make quiet triathlon into a quad sport, what would be the other sport you'd add to it? Uh, like if you put shooting or something, you know, like any sport you want. Well, the most easy, they do this a little bit is uh, kayaking. Yeah, but yeah, that's true. That's the easiest one. And mountain biking. But if you uh, something outside something the box, something outside the box. Um, I th- once I did once did a race in Asia, in Hong Kong. What was it called? Action Asia. It was called Action Asia. Was it Extreme Asia? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was. It was not extreme. And that was kind of cool. So what you did is you did a bit, a little bit of. It's a bit of adventure racing. You kind of do a little bit of kayaking in a in a crappy boat, and then you basically the rest of it was running, and you'd run through mud and stuff. But you came to a few places, and it was your mental test. And oh, you came nice. in, and there was like so a, a bit little, like a, bit like little a challenge. Race. You know, they'd hold something up, hold a piece of paper up, and you'd have to get you know yep. ten of the twenty things that were on the piece of paper. And, what and when you were quite it, fatigued, it was, was it quite hard. hard? It wasn't, you know, you were there for a few minutes, but you did you didn't get it first time. Yeah, so, so a bit of panic stations because you're losing time. Yeah. So a few mental challenges maybe in a race. What could be the fourth? Okay, we'll do it when we get back. We'll make that a discussion of the week. What could be the fourth discipline okay. for quadathlon? You got to remember that for I five weeks time. Peyton, I need to Peyton quadathlon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. Uh, so you got the, sh- the, the 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 race in Iceland. You got the gladiator in the UK. You got the north northwest triman in Spain, and then you got the chi triman in France. Now that race there was the one that had the most amount of elevation on the bike of any race anywhere in the world when we did that a little while ago. And then you've got. Uh, Challenge Galway, which I'm not sure if that's an iron or not, and then try by 226. Holy schmoly. A, lot of we, a few weeks ago, we talked about um, 
the sport being on decline. the decline a bit in terms of the numbers and stuff. But in terms of uh, selection of race you can do these days, it's uh, it's big. This race in um, Iceland looks pretty uh, pretty epic. Wow, it does look pretty epic, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> it's called Iceland for a reason. Yeah. There's a fair wow. amount of snow around. It's like a pretty small field. Yeah. <laughs> They're running across snow. I don't know if that's within the race or not. It's been going since 20, 2013. Oh, there you go. Okay, that's this news, pretty much. Yes. Okay, one prediction. We're going to make a prediction each. What's happened since we've been away? The 20-metre rule has been adopted yes. by Ironman. That's a no-brainer. And uh, and they've decided to have 50 women for Kona as well. Oh, wow. We shouldn't say things they like that. Because really people listening. sometimes believe this stuff. They're really... Well, they're, well, there you go. Yeah. And they've increased the prize money, 5 million in Kona, paying yeah. 50 deep. Yeah. There you go. So it's all happening, team. Okay, Jombo, um, we've got an interview. Colin Jonas Colting. Uh, oh, hold on. We'll do, we'll do Athlinks. Uh, oh, sponsor first. Sponsor first, and then we'll go straight into that. So, athlinks.com, keep all your results in one place. One thing that is coming up is Ironman European Championships in Germany. We'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks because uh, it's outside of Kona quite often the most competitive race and yep. draws the biggest field um, in terms of the number of people you get over there at Germany uh, they had a bit of a dip off in 2015 they only had uh, 2,058 competitors compared, whereas to? compared to 2,388 uh, in I'm 2014 dying, I'm I'm dying. Dead, dead when you start a new podcast CrossFit talk yes <laughs> and uh, at last year's race the top finishes on athletes.com was Tony Weeks in 9.40.52 so it didn't take him weeks to do it it took him less than a day to do oh, his own I love your work John and uh, Erica McClurg who finished in 11 hours and 13 seconds well it's actually interesting if we do look at the stats and this is another reason athletes are so good really I'm in Germany which is a massive race mm. on the calendar it's kind of one of the iconic races is now back to 2008 numbers. Mm. Actually lower than 2008 numbers. That was last year. It was growing every year. It seemed to be growing every year until sort of 2013 then slowed down, which is lines exactly in line with those stats we had a few weeks ago from, from Jeff. seemed like sort of 2012, 2013 was when things were really peaking and then it's just slowly drifting off. Still very popular. Still a great sport, yeah, but, but just numbers going again, down. Right? Like at its peak, they had two, two and a half thousand. Mm. So they've lost a fifth of the field. Mm. That, that's massive. Mm. And this race, which you kind of think that's going to sell that race. Mm. Last year, I'm in Germany. The average time for the boys was 12 hours and 14 minutes 21, and the girls was 12 hours 52 51. And the overall time was 12 hours 18. They had 2,058 finishes, of which where there were 247 females. Oh. All this courtesy of athletics.com, the best place for you guys to keep all your results in one place. You can geek out, team. You can geek out on athletics, on your own results and on races that you enjoy around the world. Athletics.com. John Bo, we're going to put Jonas Colting on right now. Okay, guys. So we've got uh, some sweet, the Swedish Express on today. Um, Jonas Colting from Sweden. He's a former pro triathlete, two times Ultraman World Champion, ITU World Long Distance Medalist. Um, been on the podium at Ironman races around the world. Done Epic Camp a few times, and of late has done some pretty amazing adventures. So, Jonas, welcome along to the show. Uh, hi John, thank you very much. It's uh, it's an honor to be your guest. <laughs> no problem. Hey, it's been a few years since your 
pro racing career. Um, what does life entail for Jonas Colting these days? Well, I actually uh, try to uh, stay close to the sport or actually in the sport as much as possible. Uh, uh, I do I do exercise uh, quite a bit and I uh, have some uh, very uh, unclear, st- at this point still unclear plans about doing uh, a few uh, more serious races this year. So I never really stopped uh, tr- training for triathlons. I just sort of s- stopped racing uh, at, the, at the higher point. But uh, what I do these days is I, I host a lot of camps in Sweden. I, I host a lot of swim camps, uh, swimming is uh, way up uh, here. Uh, triathlon is way up. Our uh, niche sport of a swim run is uh, way up. I know we're going to talk about that further on. Mm. And um, I do a lot of uh, uh, do a lot of um, uh, sort of corporate uh, talks on health and fitness. And uh, I have a, I have a big uh, podcast of my own here in Sweden. So uh, it's it it all revolves around fitness and health and uh, and in many parts triathlon. Fantastic. So a yeah, lot of. I- and I might add, I just I just launched my uh, <clears throat> my own wetsuit line, actually. Really? Oh, we can, I did. Yeah. We can talk about that uh, once we sort of get onto the Otillo side of things. A lot of people always, um, you know, look at Kona, and for, and for you, they they maybe look at, at Ultraman as well. Um, I guess I've got I've got a few questions around Ultraman. You know, you've done it several times. Um, Two thousand and four, you you won the race. Uh, I wasn't sure. Was that the year when you had really terrible weather? Uh, no, as I recall, it was pretty good actually. Uh, there was one year I remember seeing a picture of you around Hilo, and it was it was bucketing down with rain. But I think it rains over there most of the time. So, um, tell us a bit about Ultraman and and what your fascination was with that race because you've you've done it several times. And from a you know professional point of view, you know there's no prize money over there. So what was it that um, appealed to you about that race, and and why did you go back several times? Well, the, at a very early point in my career, I decided to, uh, not to pursue Kona. I was there once, uh, spent all my money, um, had an injury coming in, but I had made big plans and uh, eventually ended up DNFing the race. And uh, I really uh, understood at that point that uh, the Hawaii Ironman is is really for the is really for the top guys. It has a lot of uh, cor- corporate sponsorship backing them, uh, which I did not have at the time. What I did have was I had uh, support from the Swedish Federation, but that uh, that was aimed a lot for the uh, <clears throat> ITU Long Distance World Championships and the European version. So it was quite easy for me to focus a lot on those races and uh, have some stellar results and uh, it was much more fascinating for me to go to Hawaii and pursue the, the Ultraman World Championship. Uh, first of all, it made for a great story about uh, sort of circumnavigating the island over three days. And it was, just a, it, it was just a much more pleasurable experience going to Hawaii in November. The, the, not a lot of people, um, not a lot of crowds. Uh, the typical Ironman fr- frenzy uh, was not there. So it was re- very laid back. And uh, just all in all, a very nice uh, trip. And uh, and as I understand, that has been the. That's why they haven't let the race grow. Uh, it's still and like only by invitation kind of race for thirty-five or forty-ish people. So they want to have that grassroots kind of feel to the event. And I really, really appreciate that. So that's why 
that's why I've been there four times. Uh, mm. And I might add, even considering going back at one point. Nice. Now, one year, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was 2004 or a different year, you got within 27 seconds, I think, of the course record. Um, were you aware of the course record? And um, and if so, how did you manage to miss it by such a small margin over, over a three-day race? That's, uh, that, yeah, that's a good question. I think that was in 2004, actually, my first uh, hit out yeah. there. And, um, obviously, I wasn't aware of the time. Uh, and it's and I doubt that if someone would have told me uh, over the last five years of running, I I don't think I would have cared much because I was I was busy just trying to stay alive at that point. But uh, <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't really aware of, of how of how close I was. And obviously over a over a twenty two hour race, there there's plenty of plenty of opportunities to gain thirty uh, some seconds. But I just you know I I was really really happy to to come out on top of that race just just uh, embrace the experience so um yeah uh, too bad though over those uh, 30 seconds <laughs> now tell us about the run in, in hawaii because uh you know, i had a quick look at a couple of your results over there um when you won and uh, you your your run times were sort of in the I think sort of the seven fifteen range, which you know, look, running a bloody ultra marathon on that course it just seems insane to me. But some guys seem to be able to, you know, go down to six thirty or, or or so. So you're losing, you know, big chunks of time on the run, despite being, you know, a, a good runner. So um, how did the run work for you over there? Well, I, I, the two, the. Two times that I won the race, I had a big lead coming into day three, so uh, everybody starts day three at the same time, and I've managed to stay with the leader, uh, stay with uh, the leaders for the first marathoner. So I remember in 2004 we we passed through the first marathon in 257, mm. and uh, so at that at that point I I sort of felt that if I could just finish the race, I would you know I would still win, win it, and uh, obviously after uh, three or so hours of running there the it gets really really warm mm-hmm. and uh i just need a i i just need a sort of uh, uh i i need to walk quite a bit over mm-hmm. the over the last marathon just to cool down a bit because or else i'm going to implode so that's uh for me it's been a safety uh, measurement run mm-hmm. both those times that i won so i'm sure if i was if i if i would have had to uh run faster uh, I, i'm i'm quite sure i could have but it might have put me in the hospital <laughs> nice outside of ultraman um yeah you mentioned a couple of itu world long distance um, medalist performances what were, were some of the main highlights for you of your career you know those are the ones that will probably get pinned up on the wall as um you know prestigious races but you know what what were the races that for you that were real career highlights well, I uh, my first IT World Championship medal was uh, was uh, obviously something I'll always remember. I came third in two thousand and one, uh, and which was actually uh, the only one year uh, in which uh, the ITU held the the long distance championships over the Ironman distance, uh, due to the fact that uh, the organizer of the event, or uh, Fredericia in Denmark, had um, that's that's what their course uh, course measured. And uh, so that was a big breakthrough. And um, also in the years following, I came uh, second in 2004, and I was also fourth and fifth and sixth. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I basically had all the places except first. 
to long distance and uh, had some really good runs. Actually, my, my best distance uh, is what they call the Nice distance, the the 4K uh, swim, the 120K bike, and the 30K run, which for me was was the perfect mix of uh, endurance and speed. And I did a few of those runs in the 147, 148 range, which was you know the mm-hmm. the best the best running I ever did. Mm, nice. Um, on to on to Otillo, um, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that at least close to being right. Um, it's coming to America, and a lot of uh, athletes don't know anything about it. Um, some athletes listening to this won't still won't know anything about it. Um, but tell us about the race and its and its sort of history and and what it's all about. Well, Otillo uh, uh, or Island to Island uh, is the uh, equivalence of the Ironman Hawaii race. Uh, the sport has actually been dubbed uh, swim run at this point. Yeah. And um, uh, it's it really started with this crazy race in which, uh, I don't know, a few guys just made a bet. You know, there's there's the similarity to Hawaii again. <laughs> a few guys made a drunken bet of, you know, whether or not they were going to make make it from one island to another island across the archipelago in Stockholm. And uh, they, you know, they spent two days uh, hammering and hammering through swimming across and running over. And, and by some chance, a race organizer in Sweden heard about this bet and the, the, the drunk wager and, uh, and this sort of endurance, uh, you know, the, this, this crazy two day, uh, uh, thing they did, and uh, they tried to make it make it a one day event, and they called us, and they called a few other guys, and made us come for the first time in two thousand and six. We didn't have the we didn't have the first clue about what this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, are we are we are we swimming? How, how many swims? How many runs? Or how long are we having? Sho- are someone placing our shoes in the on these islands? No, mm-hmm. you need one pair of shoes. You need to swim in your shoes. And not only did we have to wear a wetsuit, we needed to wear a safety vest on top of the wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> These guys came from the multi-sport or adventure racing world. You know, they were you know they were dead certain people would actually drown out there. And I tried to explain to them it's impossible to actually uh, it's impossible to even swim underwater with this. <laughs> so to make a very long story short, for this first year, basically no team finished out of those three four teams. Uh, a Finnish team crossed the finish line, but they never swam one stroke. They actually pa- uh, they they sort of paddled on a uh, air mattress the entire <laughs> way because <laughs> they haven't they hadn't ruled that out in the rules. So they used an air mattress, which was you know it's just what kind of world sport is this? <laughs> but in the following years, uh, it's it's you know it's the following year it was kind of the same way. It wasn't very well organized. It was kind of hard to find your way. It was really sort of unclear what this was. Then the third year they sort of, they streamlined all the rules and the the gear that you had to have, and that's the first year I won. Mm-hmm. Then in two thousand I wrote and I wrote about it on Slow Twitch. And uh, in two thousand and nine it grew. In two thousand and ten it it had really grown, and that was the the year that I won with Gordo. He mm-hmm. came over in this race. And um, from that point on, it just sort of exploded. And uh, from that year on, they had more. They filled out the race instantly. Uh, 120, 120 teams. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so what this is, uh, this swim run is like a. It's like a. It's like an obstacle course 
uh, or it's like a swim and run course. It's like a very prolonged aquathlon where you mm. sort of use the uh, the geography of you know wherever archipelago, lake, uh, islands, and you sort of swim and run and swim and run. You always do it in pair, so mm-hmm. you're always a couple. Uh, you have to. Uh, obviously wear your shoes when you're swimming or if you're not you know some people take them off but it takes a it takes a lot of time to stand still putting shoes back on so you're allowed to use paddles uh, just to sort of get some lift in the water uh, you're allowed to tow each other if you're if one is a stronger swimmer and one is not and the, the sport of swim run it's it's just amazing at this point we probably have 50 races here in Sweden I have my own race which yeah. takes place uh, in two weeks yeah and um it's you know, it's it's probably the hip it's probably the hippest thing you can do. Like in Stockholm, if you were to run in downtown Stockholm on a lunch break, if, with your cat off wetsuit and running shoes, you'd be you know you'd be that you'd you'd be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hippest thing you can do. And Ötilö, the the organization, they're they're really good at sort of conceptualizing this as a as a business venture. Uh, they prop they have five or six own uh, they own five or six brand races which are like Ötelö qualifier races they have one in Switzerland one in England one in Germany uh, they have uh, two or three here in Sweden they have merit races of, of which one uh, mine is one of those they have a qualification system a ranking and they're they're really good at taking this extremely niche endurance wager and make it into a bona fide legitimate sport so what are the sort of distances for for race day? That's a good question. Ötelö uh, is um, uh, roughly 10 kilometers of swimming and uh, 56 kilometers of running. Mm. And the term the term running should be very should be tra- uh, sort of translated very loosely here, as a lot of times it's you're not you're basically just bushwhacking across an island that has no paths or anything. Mm. Uh, the race I have in uh, in Budapest, where I live, is um, five kilometers of swimming over uh, thirteen swims, and for uh, twenty nine kilometers of running over fourteen runs. So, mm. uh, and I string, you know, I have a number of lakes that I string together, and you swim across the lake, and you, you know, back and forth, uh, and it's a it's a lot of fun. Mm. And uh, so many recreation, so many people that have never swum before, that basically haven't run before, and they just uh, people are just attracted to the I don't know to the grassroots kind of feel to the adventure of things. My my fiance, who had never would would have never dreamt of swimming, let alone swim in open water. She loves uh, uh, swim run. She wants to race mm. a swim run race every weekend if she can. Mm, nice. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty cool. So I'd say most distances for recreational athletes would take anywhere from three and a half hours up to eight hours. Yeah, and and so. In terms of the logistics, you know, for, for people that are listening to this, they're your standard triathlete, um, or, and they might be one of the Americans getting ready for the, one of those races, or they might listen to this and go, I'd like to go and do one of these European races. The, what What is the deal with the equipment? Because, you know, we've seen some specialist wetsuits coming out. Um, but what, what, what sort of do people need to be aware in terms of getting ready for this race and, and what equipment they should use, you know, what sort of shoes and so on? Yeah. First of all, the people get to understand that this is not a this is not a triathlon. It's not a it's not a uh, like it, everything in in swim run is a compromise. Like everything is going to be a little bit awkward and sort of a little bit uh, 
um, I don't know, kind of slow because what you're doing is you're at you're swimming with your shoes, which you know is a very poor way to swim if you want to swim fast, and you run in your wetsuit, which is kind of stupid if you want to run fast. <laughs> and it's so everything is a kind of a compromise. So a triathlete has to let go of the sort of the speed concept. Swim run is really a sport of strength, strength and endurance and teamwork. And uh, like the basic setup for for um, uh, equipment wise, it's it's quite simple. You well, you just you could you actually use your tri suit uh, as a first layer, or just a pair of uh, like a pair of running shorts or something. And then you want to have a wetsuit, and you want to make sure to cut your wetsuit above the above the elbow and above the knee. And you need to do that in order to to be able to run, or else those joints are going to make everything is going to be very stiff and sore, and you're going to be way overheated. Mm. And uh, like you mentioned, with the wetsuit. Uh, some wetsuit companies have now also started to produce wetsuits with the zipper attached to the front of the wetsuit uh, in addition to the one in the back, which is just so you can open the wetsuit in front and get some fresh air in mm. during the run. And that's, uh, that's the way that we've done with my wetsuit company as well. The, the trade-off, or, or actually the, the, the negative thing of having a zipper in the front is that it makes the chest sort of, it, it makes it stiff on the front. So mm. I, I actually prefer the old school version of just cutting in a normal uh, triathlon wetsuit. And uh, for the long runs, you might uh, sort of what we call uh, cab cab down, <laughs> mm. like cab, cab lay down to actually take your, the, the, the top of the wetsuit off and just tie it around your waist. Mm. And for shoes, you know, your ordinary, uh, like if you're an Xterra triathlete or an, uh, like an Xterra yeah, athlete that, that do the mountain bike triathlons, like any kind of trail run, shoe is fine. Uh, you want to have a shoe that is low to the ground uh, with some good traction. Um, obviously, hand paddles are are allowed. And uh, so just choose the, the biggest pair that you think you can be able to sustain swimming with for whatever swim distance, 5 to 8K or something like that. Um, other than that, you know, it's it's... It's if you're if you're teaming up with the slower swimmer, you need to have some sort of a bungee bungee cord between yourself so you can pull your teammate or something because that makes your team go faster. Mm-hmm. So there there's there's plenty of pictures on slowtwitch.com and there's there are plenty of movies on YouTube to to see what everyone else is doing. And can you use a pull, a pull buoy as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I I advise against it though because uh, you you actually have. Quite a quite a bit of lift uh, through your uh, hips with your wetsuit. I would recommend to put like uh, floating calves on, and that, that's also what we've designed in my company. That mm. like it's almost like comp- uh, like uh, compression tubes that you have mm. on your uh, lower limbs, and uh, there is a floating material on the front there that floats your lower uh, legs. <laughs> nice. Um, yes. any, co- I guess one of the the. You know, I'm thinking about this race. I'm thinking, God, you must cramp up chronically in the swim. So, are there any common mistakes you see athletes making, and and is cramp a, a a fairly common occurrence as you're getting sort of further into the race for the for the swim legs, especially? No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say there's a lot of cramping going on. Actually, I, I'd say that the biggest mistake were actually the the uh, if swimming is one leg or one discipline and running is one leg tra- transitioning is definitely a third leg uh, which, which by which i mean getting in and out of the water uh, at every point like cause if you're if you're doing in the stockholm archipelago you have 42 
ins or outs of the water onto slippery rocks and you know god knows what so mm -hmm. it's actually that's a big task just you know uh, not standing not standing still at any point uh, and being very smooth in and out of the water being smooth and safe not falling and not tripping because you know you're running on very slippery algae rocks at some points and it's it, it, a lot of moss in the forest so mm. um just being sort of fast over that course of terrain is is what most people lack skills and i lack skills and i'm not very fast there you know we have a sport in sweden orienteering and i know mm. it's pretty big in new zealand too mm. in which people run with map in the forest and you know and those guys that transition into swim run oh my god they're so fast in the forest you wouldn't believe how fast <laughs> they can run and you know i feel like i'm a i'm a dinosaur you know trampling around but uh, these guys i <laughs> through the forest Awesome. Okay, so we're looking forward to seeing that event spread around the world, and I might even see if I can think about uh, doing one down here in Christchurch as well. You've, you've, you've kept yourself busy as well doing some other crazy adventures, and, and what prompted me to get in touch was uh, when I saw you over in Tanyapura swimming around Phuket. So it seems like you've been doing some adventures. You did that, and you also did uh, some crazy long swim around Sweden. So maybe just tell us a bit about those adventures. Yeah, that, that swim across Sweden a few years ago, that was really something special. I, I always enjoyed sort of the adventure aspect of training, like like we did with Epic Camp, when you move uh, mm -hmm. from one place to another, you go from point A to point B, and th that really attracts me. I've done a lot of those uh, training camps in Sweden. I've gone um, like 1,500 miles from the south point of Sweden to the north point by bike a few times as a bike uh, as a training camp. And um also, you know, normally, uh, typically running as well. And and I, at one point, I realized I'd, that I'd never done anything similar with uh, swimming. And uh, I felt that, uh, uh, you know, given the fact that Sweden is filled with lakes and rivers and has an, a very long coastline, I figured uh, maybe, it's, you know, you, you should be able to sort of... Uh, swim between one significant place to another and when I studied the map it was quite obvious that you could actually swim from Stockholm which is the capital and on the east coast in the Baltic Sea and you could actually swim through uh, through sort of uh, lakes and in oceans and through uh, rivers, man-made rivers, lakes and actually swim across Sweden to the west coast to Gothenburg which is the second, second closest city and quite close to where I live. And, um, you know, I just planned for it and I did it. I swam for six weeks and I averaged uh, 17 kilometers per day and I raced uh, 100,000 US dollars for uh, WaterAid, uh, wow. which, you know, they work with clean water in, in uh, um, sort of third in the third world countries where, where clean water and sanitation is needed. Fantastic. And um, <clears throat> what were the, some of the big challenges you faced going through that? Did you, did, was it, um, you know, I can imagine doing these big running events where you run a, a marathon a day for multiple days and your knees and stuff giving out. How did your body handle all that swimming? Actually, my body handled it very well. It was more, for me, it was just a very long, tedious, pro not a tedious, but it was a very stressful project since we had this charity thing going. And it's, I had, I had quite a few, I had, quite a few people in my team that sort of switched each other they you know they were swapping each other out to uh, to be on on the team and you know because you know you always needed someone driving the car you always needed some someone in the boat you always needed a logistics person mm. and we had one guy filming and it's it was just a big project to to manage for 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 almost seven weeks uh, that we were on the road so it was more like the stress 
of constantly having to uh, you know finding solutions to to problems and uh, just you know managing things and uh, uh, obviously the water was cold at times and I did swim actually without a wetsuit for most part of the swim mm. uh, it was just we just had a fantastic summer that year uh, in the end it got really cold it got really windy we had a lot of headwind a lot of waves and it just it just wore me down and then I was I was very fatigued but physically I was I, I got stronger and stronger I I probably had my best few days of swimming in the very end there and I just actually it's it's crazy but when I finished I just wanted to keep swimming you know I just wanted to get in the water the next day and just swim nice. <laughs> but you know that's how it was so yeah it was it was it was quite a journey I, I I'll never forget it so in, in terms of what you got going on in Sweden you know obviously our audience is um is a pretty international one um do you get any foreigners coming over you know you got your, you got your camps and you, you talked about your swim run events is is any of this sort of targeted at um people outside of Sweden well uh for for the swim run event that we have we actually do have quite a, quite a few foreigners uh coming now we have uh I don't know, four or five Swiss teams, we have French teams, we have British teams, uh, Norwegian, Danish, and I think that's not so much uh, due to the fact that, that uh, they heard about our event as much as they actually heard about Swim Run at some point, and we're pretty close to an inter- international airport here, so mm. my event is, is quite easy to get to, so it just goes to show that uh, Swim Run is growing like on, on a major sort of on a major ski in in the major scheme of things it's it's really growing but uh i'm 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 basically targeting it to the swedish audience but it's mm. i'm very uh, i'm very pleased with the, the fact that we have you know, you know international competitors as well uh, mm. most of the stuff i do is actually targeted to swedes mm. but we're, i'm sort of branching out also to norway and denmark you know cuz mm. our languages are very similar mm. Oh no! I've, I have I have looked at Sweden a couple of times, thinking I've got to do an epic camp over there at some stage. So, uh, some stage will get over your way. In, in terms of anything else you you want to get out there, or or anything else you've got on the agenda, um, yeah, anything else going on? Well, I uh, I did have a uh, I did have a Swedish bike tour. Uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, when Klaus Bjorling uh, was uh, was with me, and uh, we just. Uh, we just talked about how much fun that, that how how much we enjoy that lifestyle of just being on the road, uh, working out side by side. You know, you're usually switching locations every so often. You mm. wind down at night. You know, a lot of lot of talking. Lot, you know, some good red wine. And just enjoying ourselves, and it's such a pleasure being able to do that on the on the other side of of being 40 years old and just mm-hmm. not so much for trying to be a great athlete but just because uh, you know it makes it makes us uh, like better persons just doing it and just finding the core, like some not very nice core values in life and just remembering where the true pleasures are and that's you know spending a lot of time with friends uh, doing a lot of healthy exercise and just you know um, trying to reach out to people and, and to inspire them Fantastic! I know it's awesome. It's been great following your career, and uh, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy all that advice you've given about swim run, and uh, look forward to that uh, you know that that sort of genre of the race, of of our sport um, growing, and hopefully we can all get over to Sweden. So, Jonas, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, John. What Epic Camps did he do? He would have done the ones the ones where we had some 
pro athletes. So, and the first one that I did was 2005. Yeah, when we went to Australia, he came on that one, and that's when Gordo was doing them, and he was trying to surround himself with as many good athletes as he could. Yep. And then obviously you'd have the age group athletes that would help sort of fund the camps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, so those we had like Jonas Colting, Klaus Bjorling, yep. Bjorn Anderson, Stephen Bayliss, Bella Bayliss, um, uh, Monica's now wife, and so you'd have quite a good number of pro athletes. So I think he did uh, 05, 06, something like that, and he's done maybe three of them. And yep. um, yeah, he was a fantastic athlete. Mm. No, he was also, didn't he do Ultraman? He was an Ultraman world champion. Yeah, good point. Go. Yeah. Well done. And I think he's, uh, I think he's still the course record holder. Oh, really? Yeah, he certainly, you know, he was, he's one of the few pro athletes that yeah, actually did the race because you don't get any prize money in Ultraman. It's all about the prestige, prestige of, yeah. of going and doing it. So, so I wouldn't say, you know, yeah, we had Hillary Biscay has also done it as well. Yeah. Um, Gordo but won I, it. Gordo won it. But um, Jonas was probably the most well known in terms of actually, you know, being a world championship medalist. Uh, yeah, I think so. Pretty sure Sorry, Melina, I should know these things, but um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Back in the day? Yes. Okay, well, there you go, Jonas. It's not a race that you do for prize money, though. Okay, we've got another sponsor. John, let's talk about... X-Endurance. Tell me about it, John. Love their protein chocolate recovery drink. Post, uh, post-training and recovery, refuel with 1,500 milligrams of lactate, natural fuel, helps support new lean muscle growth. Key things is uh, uh, gluten-free, uh, hydrogenated oil-free, preservative-free, and trans fats-free. And that's all good stuff that I've been learning about in my nutrition paper. Really? Got to get rid of all those things. The trans fats? The trans fats, that's a bad, bad news, Brown. So 18 amino acids, branched-chain amino acids, 100% of US recommended daily serving of vitamin B6, B12, and D. Cool thing about the Extreme Endurance Protein, tastes awesome. It's just beautiful like chocolate milkshake and fantastic so i'll be cranking some of that over in france uh you know guys it's pretty well proven that um, protein is obviously going to enhance your recovery so check out xendurance.com remember use your promo code imtalk10 you get 10 percent off anything on there and that's on the dot com dot eu dot websites check it out also you know if you know you are someone who likes to use the protein and you've got a kind of a of system around it you might just every after long run you have a bit of a protein shake and you kind of realize that after every couple of months you run out you can just go on the recurring delivery exactly. and automatic delivery and so it kind of it turns up every period of time that you know you need to figure out how often you need it but once you've done that then it just kind of pops up it's always a nice surprise when you do something like that too eh? oh yeah you know love it just turns up oh yes exactly okay x endurance guys check 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 it out okay jumbo now david galbraith david galbraith is i actually heard an interview on tony Veach, and i thought wow mm-hmm. this guy's fascinating mm-hmm. and um he's he's basically a sports psychologist he's worked with olympic gold medalists he's worked with top end sports people basically from all levels mm-hmm. so i asked him to come on my show and um yeah really good interview really i really really enjoyed this interview got a lot from it and i'm sure you guys will as well so i'm going to check that on right now here we go here's david galbraith Okay, team, I'm very happy to have on the show the author of the book Unleashing Greatness in Sport and Life Through the Pathway of Courage, uh, David Galbraith, on the show today, and just thank you for coming on the show today. 
Oh, Bevan, my pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to it. I've been thinking about it this morning, actually. Thinking, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this chat. Oh, good stuff. Well, first of all, I, I always try to kind of learn about the person first. So maybe just tell me a little bit about your history um, and what got you into the idea of studying psychology leading early on in your life. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's probably an interesting story there straight away. Like when I went first year at so, um, university, so I took a year off between high school and university and played rugby and worked in the freezers at the local freezing works in central Hawke's Bay um, and the freezers stacking frozen carcasses yeah. and then after that I thought man I don't want to do that again and then I thought okay I'm going to see if I can make it in rugby and went to Christchurch to Canterbury University and took forestry, sociology, maths, German and psychology for the first year I had no idea what I wanted to do <laughs> and I played ter- terrible rugby so that didn't work <laughs> I got a C minus average in my in my, in my um, undergraduate degree, and I was standing in the centre of Island Campus, thinking, "Shit, man, now what am I going to do?" And then I thought, "Oh, hold on, all the pretty girls do psychology." <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so I thought, "I'll just do that for a little bit longer." <laughs> the true motivation comes out. Yeah, man, so there was nothing profound, there was nothing like I just had this realisation one day that psychology was where I was supposed to end up or be. It was just that one moment I can vividly remember it, standing there thinking, well, if I want a hot wife, that's probably what I need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just progressed from there, really, like I, because I had a C-minus average, I struggled to get into any master's papers, and Massey was the only place I could go and do my master's, and then, long story short, I, I got my grades up. Um, got accepted into the Auckland program to become well the clinical psychology program up there, and then started working on forensics um, through my my last part of my study, and it was there that I had the realization that that was where I was supposed to end up. So it was obviously a long journey to get there, but I had that moment in the end working with the Linkwin Youth in Auckland where it was like, yeah, man, this is this is what I was supposed to be doing, and so I guess that's where I ended up as a psychologist, and then did that for about six to ten years as well as the child, youth and family for yep. our social services yep. and then when my daughters were born I found it, I was just working with sex offenders as well as um, within social services with parents that hurt kids and struggle with parenting. I guess it was in that moment that I realised when my kids were born I couldn't maintain compassion mm, and really? then it just became really apparent that I needed to do something else and I was a failed athlete in so many codes you know, I thought oh, no, I'll just do start doing some sport and started to put together a sport program and obviously rugby was my passion and tried for three or four years in, in Hamilton to get into Prem Rugby because there's no one doing sports psychology in Premier Rugby back then and they were keen as mustard to have a coffee and just chat I think they maybe a farming background it was always enjoyed talking to people over a coffee so they always enjoyed that but but they, we didn't get, I didn't get any traction really on getting in front of rugby players and actually getting stuck into the psychology side of things and performance. And then when it was probably second year after trying to get into that environment, I realized I had to do something different. And so then I challenged myself to live by what I was trying to work with athletes on, which is to be courageous as hell. And so I thought to myself, well, what's the most courageous thing I can do right now? And then I thought, well, the most courageous thing to do would be to phone the All Blacks. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> I was taking in Prem Rugby. And, and for those of you the- who don't know overseas, All Blacks is the biggest rugby brand in the world. It's, it's the All Blacks are the best team. It's, it's, and in New Zealand, it's just the biggest institution, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's massive. It's a machine. Yep. Yeah, it's a massive machine, and and so that was probably the most. It certainly was. It was the most courageous thing that I could come up with in my head to do. So, shaking like a leaf, man. I was petrified and phoned the NZAU and said what I had was a sports psychology program. I thought that could really help the All Blacks. <laughs> <laughs> and she she was so nice, man. She said, "Oh, that's wonderful." Oh, here's a phone number of one of our providers who's in Hamilton right now. And I was what, you're joking? It was like one phone call. And then I was basically that led to a, a wonderful evening where I went around and met up with a guy called Dave Hatfield who was working with the Crusaders, I think, at that time, or, or within that network anyway. And we just spent the evening and chatted about psychology. And he was a fixed farmer, so we talked about farming. And long story short, he became a mentor. And then I guess that's where the doors really started to open. I started to work, um, got into Prem Rugby in Hamilton and... And then, long story short, I just did that. I just jumped in. I was working as a clin psych then, but I came on board with a uh, with a rugby team that did bloody well, and I just immersed myself in it. And I think what well, you said before that whole thing about image and um, PT or training was probably the opposite reason why I was doing what I was doing. I just loved it, man. And I was just at every training. I was almost like want to put my boots back on. It was like they couldn't, they, they almost couldn't stop me from coming. I was at every training, went to every game, travelled with them. And it was just a prem rugby team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I just got boots and boots and all there and haven't stopped really. And it's just led to bigger and bigger things and now I get to it full time. So that's probably the shorter shorter version of the long version. Uh, you have had an interesting kind of trajectory in your career because like, it's, I always find it really interesting, you know, nowadays, and we'll talk about, you know, a lot of your philosophies and kind of tools that you can share and stuff. But nowadays... There's, you know, you're working with people who are motivated to get there to their best. And whereas in the early yeah. part of your career, you were dealing with people who didn't have any life skills um, and, and very destructive. And, yes. and and probably part of the challenge was even to just help them to discover that they need to change. So yeah. when you think about the earlier part of your career, when you're dealing with that kind of opposite kind of person who you're dealing with now, what kind of impact were you able to have or was it a losing battle? Or, or, and if so, when you were able to create change, what helped change in those environments? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Because I thought, yeah, I think you made a really you made a great point, and it's something I've thought a little bit about, obviously too. And I guess the way I looked at it is, I got to work on I've worked on both ends of the spectrum mm, now, which really I think you're really highlighting. Yeah. yeah. And the crazy thing is, and I think it has a lot to do with what you said before, which is about image. The crazy thing is the process. I go through and working with an offender or an elite athlete is exactly the same. Really, and that's the bit that just does like it's it's just mind-boggling how when you think about why that is or how that works, it, I reckon it does help us understand how to get the best out of ourselves and others. And the way that I look at it is the offenders. I just I love the metaphor of cake and icing because when I grew up, well, my old man and mum were they were good people, man, but we we were poor, eh? Like, Dad was a shepherd. He earned twenty-five bucks a week. Mum was a house, you know, home mum. She did all the all the baking, but we made butter by hand. We had a house cow, and we didn't have icing. She used to make great cakes, man. Like she'd make fruit cakes, chocolate cakes, banana cakes, carrot cakes. We never had icing. But every six weeks, we'd go into the local city, which was Napier from way in the Wops, and a little Vauxhall Viva, and buy groceries. And if mum and dad were happy and we were well behaved, we got fish and chips on Marine Parade. Yep. And if we were really lucky, we're allowed to open the tomato sauce before we got home. And it's almost like, <laughs> it's like I look back at that now and think, wow, I didn't even know it back then, but that was establishing the foundation for me to achieve, I guess, what I have, but go on to help others. 
because all we had was cake. And so you just didn't have to worry about the icing because there was never any. And so if we think about offenders, they, they, they've got a shitty cake and a shit, and they've just almost like their icing's terrible as well. Mm. But the, the, if you go to the other end of the spectrum with elite athletes, they, they, they've got gold medal icing. Mm. Whereas the offenders, their icing's shocking. And so it's for me, it's ironical that yeah, their behaviour and what they've done, one's positive and one's negative, but it's still behaviour. Yep. And it's the process underneath that, which is the key one. And so you can have an athlete that's doing amazing things, but they can be depressed, man. Yep. And they're depressed because they're infatuated with the icing or infatuated with image or whatever it might be. They're, all they're looking at is the icing. And their cake's like so thin, it's it's almost like, oh, I laugh when i got a wedding, eh? Like if you go to a wedding and you, you this, usually see this at weddings, eh? Like the, <laughs> but when the, when, the, when the wedding cake comes out, everyone's body language changes. Like most people do not want wedding cake <laughs> and they're trying to pass it around on those little napkins and people are actually physically trying to get into another part of the room or turn around from it. They just don't want it and they don't want it because it's covered in thick marzipan icing yeah. and the inside's a shitty bit of fruitcake. <laughs> and then people will cut off the marzipan and they'll eat the fruitcake. But that's such a metaphor for life. Like I, if I those weddings, I often say to people next to me, oh, I'll give the marriage six months and they're like, <laughs> what, man, there's a terrible thing to say. And I go, yeah, but look at the cake. <laughs> Because <laughs> I've got two daughters, they one's thirteen and one's ten, and I'm really clear, man. When we when they get married, I'm going to be in charge of the cake. <laughs> it's my metaphor for life. I'm having a good cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I'll sit down with an elite athlete, and I'm finding myself talking to them exactly the same way as a um, offender. Like when I work with offenders, I used to start by saying, "Look, mate." I don't really care what you've done. I, I, I care that you've done, that you've done, you know, you haven't done good things and you've hurt people. That's what I care about. But reality, I'm going to have to put that aside. We'll get back to that. But first of all, we've got to help you find yourself. Mm. Like, who the hell are you? you? At the moment, you're doing this terrible stuff in the world, but I reckon underneath you don't actually have any idea who the hell you are. And that's where our discussion started. But with an athlete, they'll come in and say, oh, I want to win a world championship or whatever the hell it is. And I'll say to them, that, man, that's nice, that's, that's lovely, I'm really pleased with you. But we'll get back to that. And it's crazy, like I don't even, it's, I, I care, but I don't care. I care more about how they're, how they're doing what they're doing. Like I get more of a buzz out of watching someone fail, emptying their heart and soul and dying in the pursuit of their own greatness than I do seeing someone that was more than likely going to win. Mm. And that's the bit that I reckon is the similarity between the offenders and the elite athletes is that the process of psychology in that space is it's about humanity. It's about challenging them to look at themselves. It's about challenging them to go on a journey of self-discovery. It's about challenging them to get away from the, I guess, the way that the whole world does it, which is it's all about image and it's all about icing and, and everything gets lost. And I reckon that's why the planet's in the state it's in and that's why our economy's in the state it's in because it's all about the illusion of icing and there's nothing of substance in it. And shit, isn't it ironical now that we're actually learning that sugar is toxic. Mm. And so it just makes so much sense to me that the icing metaphor is also there's the image the image for the psychology or the mind is toxic too. Is it, is it very challenging for you? But because the, 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 irony, the irony of what you're saying is that really you're saying is that the job is to find the foundation as the person. Um, and, and if we can get Correct. that right, um, then you're going to be a healthy person. And 
in theory Correct. that leads to better behaviors towards, towards better results but in sport Correct. the reward is the winner um and the reward is the outcome isn't it the winner takes it all you know the if you look at you know dan carter gets twice as much as a guy who's only four percent less skilled than him you know and so you know it, it's it's almost like sports people are playing in conditions or well, maybe it's a worldly thing really that we're playing in conditions that are so motivated towards the icing that it's hard for people to see that it's not the right thing to chase yes you hit it on the nail like it we get indoctrinated in this we, we get taught this from school we get taught this in sport we get taught this in the way society operates is that the richest most successful people receive what from the outside looks like all of the you know the greatest life mm. and 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 the saddest thing about that is it's not true of course we need you know like for me the the best example that you know the, the ideal outcome is a lovely thick carrot cake with a nice slither of cream cheese icing with a great coffee and a great cafe with great friends mm -hmm. now that's the perfect picture so we still need the icing but the ratio to which that we live our lives of cake to icing is wrong mm -hmm. and no one and most people can't actually they can't just they can't fathom or deal with the possibility that they're going to have a piece of cake with no icing the fact that they'll you know, like the hardest thing for me, which I see, is people people struggle to make a commitment to do something for life if there's no guarantee of payback. Mm. And unless they get guaranteed that they're going to get some sort of payback, some sort of recognition, some sort of success, in the sense of that word of success, they don't start. Mm. Well, they don't even try because they're not going to get anything for it. And I just think, wow, well, that's the very reason that you struggle with your own emotion excuse me, emotions there, and longevity with regards to being disciplined and maintaining habits. They're constantly looking for external motivation to give themselves the reason to be doing what they're doing, but that's the opposite to what we need. Like I, I love the concept of you get married twice, you marry the woman ideally of your dreams or whatever, and you marry what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you don't go, you know, most people go, oh, I'm going to do six or seven different things in my lifetime. I'm thinking, man, we don't have time to do something that deeply for we've only really got time to do one thing really, really, really well. One's to hopefully generate some happy kids or a family, if that's what we choose. And the second one is to find something that we absolutely love doing that's then going to make a difference in the planet. Mm -hmm. And those two things, if you just pursue that, you know, and you're looking for examples of it, Mother Teresa, there's a great example of it. A lady had no icing. And you can guarantee if you put her through a stringent psychological assessment, she'd come out pretty happy. Mm. And that's a crazy thing. It's funny, just from my own experience, I just went over to England to do some work and I stayed with kind of a very a mentor type character in my life and he's um just this very wise soul who's been had a big impact on my life. And uh and he lives in the poorest part of England. He and, yeah. and he lives in this apartment unit and it's literally like two small bedrooms. Um but he and he's a very intelligent man. He could, he could have all the icing if he wanted to. And he's a yeah. school teacher, and all he wants to do is have impact on young men. And yeah. you just you know, and, and even for because I do have that sense of mission in my life. But even just going back and spending some time with him, and it was just a real realignment moment for me because it was you know I do get caught up yeah. in chasing some icing that it's actually not that important. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh no, he's got it right. You know, it is that your job is to do your mission. Correct. And commit to it, and and actually, yes. he's he, there's no sense of lacking in him at all. You know, there's no sense of that he's lacking anything in this process. Yeah. You know, if yeah. anything, he's just ultimately fulfilled, and, yes. and 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 he sees the impact he has on the world, and it's so rewarding. And and I just came back from that experience, and I'm someone who's pretty close to that normally anyway. But it just it was just such a realignment of oh wow, 
he's got it right. And actually, that's where I need to keep my focus moving forward, not being distracted by things that aren't necessarily that important. Oh, absolutely. And our challenge, if we think about that as a process of change, is like I was sitting with an athlete, and it's early on, I'm going, okay. If we, we start talking about courage pretty quickly, because I, I believe the courage concept or the value of courage underpins everything that follows. So I don't think we can even find our why until we've talked about whether we're going to choose to live our lives by courage or be a coward. Because it's that, that, that process of reflection on the underlying way we live actually frees up the unconscious mind to be open and vulnerable mm-hmm. or closed and repressed and regressed. So if we're living with self-doubt and fear of failure, there's no way we can find our accurate why. There's no way we can find out what's deeply important to us because we're deep. We're actually, brain science shows us that we're actually operating from a place of safety. Mm-hmm. And when we're in a place of safety, there is no neurochemical process going on which causes us to want to open the front of our brain and thrive. So if that's in process, there's no way we can actually get that until we operate from courage, which will then ironically open up the brain in a way that generates the neurochemicals that we need to free us up to think and think ambitiously. Mm. Conversation for me is the primary one to start with because then I go, yeah, I want to live a life of courage. I want my life to be fine by courage, not being a coward. And I go, great, we'll start that today. And if they're in a relationship, I'll say, right, let's say it's a young 20-year-old male, male. I'll say, sweet, have you got a girlfriend? And they'll go, yeah, I have. And I'll go, how long have you been going out with her? And I'll go, oh, maybe four or five years. i say, she's pretty important to you then. And I go, yeah, yeah. And I go, okay. When you come home from your train and you're recovering, and let's say she's in town, and then she comes home and you hear the key go in the lock, what's the first thing you think? Do you think, yay, she's home, and rush out and give her a big hug and say, I've missed you? Or do you think, oh, shit, she's home? <laughs> yeah. And that, so I'll start with conversations like that. And then I'll say, okay, so you're a son. So how often do you talk to your dad? What's your relationship like with your mum? And I'll go through the whole world almost like a Warren a fitness check and, and go, right, let's look at those and you tell me out of 10 about how pure they are. Because usually once they connect with courage, what we find is that they need to go and have some pretty hard conversations because there'll be places in their life they're not happy about. Mm. And it's not until they can get that alignment that I reckon they free up their mind to live frontal brain and then be ready to thrive. And if they haven't fixed those areas in their lives or got them as well as they can, like I acknowledge in some, some people's lives there's pricks in their families and they're not the yeah. sort of relation, discussions I'm encouraging them to go and have. If those sorts of people exist, they're better off just to cut them out and get on with life themselves. Mm. But I'm talking about you know your general relationships where you might not be quite happy because of certain things, mm-hmm. where you can't express who you are fully because you're, you know, you're just repressing a little bit of being conservative and careful, you're not being yourself. They're the sorts of discussions I'm talking about. Because ultimately, in the end, whether it's your first-time runners, whether it's an Olympian going for a gold medal in a final, at that point they start. It's the challenge about where, how pure are they going to be in their self-expression. And if they're not expressing themselves fully with their girlfriend at home, there's no way under pressure in a rugby game that they're going to be fully unleashing unconsciously, instinctively. There'll be fear of failure and self-doubt there somewhere which will be holding them back. So the point of courage, I reckon, is the fundamental one. And then from there you go, right, now you've started to understand this concept of courage, you've got your homework to go and do in those areas, and then I want you to think about what you want to do with your life or what you really love. And then we've got to find that, because unless it's, what is it, um, Steve Jobs, eh? like I remember one of his quotes was, um, do what you love and don't stop searching until you find it, something like that. Yeah. And, and saying no a thousand times to find out what you really want to do. And I think that's a critical ingredient is we live in a time where it's essentially up to us what we choose to spend our life doing. And that makes it hard sometimes because now you have to be responsible. 
you can't just follow the sheep. Mm. Well, we still do, but I reckon the hardest thing is to actually sit down and go deep inside yourself when you're quietly, um, you know, your mind's quiet and you've got a nice quiet mind and actually ask, what is it I want to do? Where am I happiest? Where am I feeling most fulfilled? And then you pursue that. But most people never do that. I mean, regards, let's say, you know, I come along and, and I have, you know, I, I do think that, you know, have you built a life based off, based off insecure decisions or of of fear yeah. or safety? And, you know, and then, you know, obviously the job is to shift myself to a place where I can make these courageous decisions. But when you work yeah. with somebody, because a lot of people wouldn't have the tools to actually deal with those moments. So how do you help them move towards that place? Because I'm sure lots of people listening to this right now are probably thinking, you know, you're probably hitting some notes with them and they're thinking, you know, maybe if I reflect upon myself, I am making decisions based on that. It, it, you know, there is this kind of, well, you can't just jump jump the bridge and try to see if you can make it, but are there tools that you can help that make that kind of first step achieve more achievable or is it very much just be yeah. courageous and go? Or Yeah, no, there are. There's a, there's a number of – I think there's a, quite a few ingredients that we can pump into the cake to help generate a product that we're really proud of. Yeah. And I think the first one is – the first tool, if we think about it internally, is to – I reckon almost there's got to be a decision point where you decide things must change. And until we actually have a decision point that, you know, I vividly remember and also I've seen that in so many offenders when they were changing is the ones that really changed were that they would say things like me to me like, David, I'm sick and tired of living this way. Hmm. And when I'd hear that, when I'd hear someone say I'm sick and tired of this, I'd be going, now we're ready for change because now what we've got is internal dissonance we've got some discomfort internally. And if they've not made so, that that's key. But if also I'm hearing that without any excuses, and I sort of have, that's one of my golden rules, is no whinging or give up talk and no excuses. Because as soon as we've got whinging and give up talk and excuses, we're actually, we're actually um, nullifying a really important psychological process, which is internal dissonance based on discomfort. And often when the excuses pop in, we might be a little bit ashamed about how we've been behaving or whatever it might be or the way our life looks. We, we don't want to nullify that at all. We want to feed that. So it forces us to actually go, yeah, you know what, I'm sick and tired of being this way and it's going to change. So I reckon that's the first thing is internally, yeah, the way we talk to ourselves is so important. Mm. So we need to just monitor that and make sure that we're not making excuses, we're not whinging for the way things and the circumstances of what they've given us. Because I've seen some people who have had terrible lives change and make great lives that they were doing crime they were doing horrible things and they've been bashed and beaten and abused as kids and they had a horrible start but the ones that just go you know that is what it is and they didn't whinge about it they didn't um, use that as an, a reason or excuse for them to be behaving badly now they're the ones that really shifted and really changed so I reckon that's a key, key part of those ingredients internally and then the second one I think internally is to have that chat and go I can't do everything. I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. I can't be a physicist. I can't be a, a surgeon or whatever, an artist. I've got to actually got to decide what I'm going to spend my time doing because my time's limited. And if they can find what they love, then that's the second ingredient. If they like, if they genuinely, and it's easy to find what we love. We just we just look at some old premax principle, which is if you're not if if no one has no um, um, external controls on them, what do they spend their time doing? Mm. So you just watch someone across the week's schedule and say, can I have a look at your week's schedule? Because then you can start to see what they really love doing. 
that, that's the that's the ideal way. If you want to see what children really love doing, just watch them play, mm. and they'll go and do what they'll go and do what they love. So it's the same thing for us as adults. Is what, if we had free time, what would we do with it? Then once you've got that clear, that's is where we start to put on the external scaffolding. And if you go, you know, I, so if we just take us for example, if if we go, I want to help people change. I want to be someone who helps people achieve their own internal greatness and external um, potential in the world. Then you simply ask, if I could have anyone to be my mentor, who would that be? And then that's the that's the first external bit of external structure that you need to put in place because that that again, you see how much courage is that going to have? Because you might you might actually think someone who's incredibly famous and lives on the other side of the world, and. And then that's where you essentially, once you get that one clear, because then if I'm working with that person, I'll say, oh, that's a fantastic person. Wouldn't it be amazing to have coffee with them? And I'll go, so these are your homework. So how are you going to link in with them? How are you going to meet them? And they'll say, but I've got to earn $5,000 to fly over to America to meet them. And I'll go, imagine what that will feel like, hopping off the plane in America, coming in the taxi, driving to their clinic that they're running, and you wait till the end until there's no one there, and you walk up and shake their hand and say, um, let's say it's Jack Nicholas in golf. Jack, I've come all the way from Hamilton, New Zealand, because I want to shake your hand and have a cup of tea with you. It'd be like, that would be massive for regards to internal motivation to change. Mm. But it doesn't have to be someone on the other side of the world. It might be someone in your community that you think, you know, because for me, the mentors often, they are around us anyway. The key key thing to be mindful of when you're asking whether it's the right mentor or not is, does the thought of phoning them or meeting them scare the hell out of you? And if it does, then it's the right person. If it doesn't scare you, then it's not the right person. It should make you feel really uncomfortable because they're, out of pure respect of who they are, it should it should almost make you shake when you give them a phone call. And then that's the almost like that's the first ingredient. Like if you can have the courage to identify that person and then actually phone them or send them an email, or if they live within your community, actually go and knock on their door. The number of people that don't do that because it's too scary, the ones that do do it, I just see them, they, they just fly. It's yeah. incredible how much that injects into them self-belief. And it's like anything for me. The more we commit, the more we actually believe. And so that's a huge step. And then once that, once that's in place, I see people all of a sudden generate this massive effort because they've actually got massive courage to actually make that happen and then it creates a lovely process. So once I got the mentor, it's the that's the key because then you sit down and make a plan, and mm. that's the whole idea of the mentor is that they usually have thirty, forty years of experience, where we we don't. So we it's almost like we we're vulnerable by saying we're young, we're new, we, we don't really know what to do, and that's what the mentor is about. Is it's about it's emotional support, but it's also about the guidance to make sure we're doing the right things in the right way. And obviously, I reckon a lot of mentors become good friends because usually the person that goes and asks them to be a mentor is pretty. There's usually quite a bit of alignment and values. So that that that's a really important point is you identify what your dream is, what you love doing, and you're going to spend a lot of your life doing and committing to. Mm-hmm. Find the mentor, build the plan, and then once you've got the plan, it's it really comes down to making sure that you've got the right supports in place. And, it, 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 and elite, that's where elite sports athletes are very fortunate because they're surrounded by people who yeah, have got worlds around them, don't they? At the game, correct. And so, if you don't have that, well, then you make do. But you still try and there are still so many generous people out there. And let's say it's rugby. If you're a half rugby player and halfback, and then play for the All Blacks, you might go and approach a current super player and ask them to be a mentor. But you might go and get passing coaching from someone who's 
practicing or running a first 15 in a high school. So you basically use the resources around you to make sure that you've got the best you can access. And I guess the key bit off that too is as you start to put your plan together, one of the things I always really encourage people to put in is, ironical as it sounds, is what time in the week are you going to give away? Where are you going to do charity work? And so often people who struggle with change, if they had the mentor, if they had the plan, if they started to build the scaffolding and the right people on their team, and they also add in some, um, what I just call it charity, service, if they add into something in their week where they're actually giving back to the world, um, I reckon that ironically is a massive ingredient to help people doing the to pursue their dreams as well. Mm-hmm. And even though it's, it's the last thing most people think about, for me, it's incredibly powerful. If you go right once a week, I'm going to spend half a day teaching uh, teaching the disabled to ride horses, or um, going to help return um, servicemen's families plant um, vegetable boxes, or whatever it might be. That that in itself, ironically, is a powerful motivator to maintain your own journey because from that comes pride, and pride is the very foundation to self-belief and confidence and ambition and enthusiasm so those all those things flow off that but we don't and this is where the key bit too is we don't go and be generous or do service in a selfish way to get more motivation we do it because it's the right thing to do mm. and that's I guess that's a bit for me so there's so there's some of those tools I think are really important early on and unless they people set that sort of structure up um, I, what I find is that if you're a lone monkey you're a dead monkey you, you, you can't do great things alone mm. We need Hillary climbed Everest. There was a hundred people on that British climbing yeah, team. Yeah, a yeah. hundred people. Yeah. They make they make it sound like it was just Ed and Tenzing set off with a backpack from Kathmandu. Well, I always think the greatest punishment is solitary confinement. You know, like it's like we need people. Yes, you know, yeah. like you know, like yeah. the, the the worst treatment you can give someone is to leave them isolated. And and, and within ourselves, we have this thing of, you know, I need to do it by myself. And it, actually, it's we need to open ourselves up to people because A, they can support us, but B, actually we support them. So together we're Correct. becoming greater. Correct. Correct. People have this thing about not being vulnerable and asking for help, but for, and for me it's the marker of greatness. Mm. The greatest people are constantly asking people for their ideas. For me, the first way to tell whether someone's a coward or not is how much control they influence in their environment. Mm. Cowardliness behavior goes along hand in hand with control and resistance to feedback and closed mindset or fixed mindset. And it's all this, it's all just becomes a really vicious internal cycle with ah, tear themselves apart inside. But if they go to the other end of the spectrum and they're open and generous and they don't care whose name's on the medal, yeah. then, then that's when the magic really happens. I remember listening to it was a um, Sharapova won the French Open, I think, about three years ago. And she came in smiling, massive smile, and the media asked her, why are you so happy? She said, look, Matt, I, I come to these tournaments and my only expectation is to um, give my heart and soul. I have no expectation of myself to have to win. And so for me, again, it's just that whole thing. If people can free themselves up from needing the icing and find that the actual process of doing what they're doing, if they truly love it with the right sort of people, generates a way that, they feel that they, they probably fantasize what happened when they achieved the icing. But the irony is you get that before the day you win your gold medal or you get that before you win the championship or you get that before you achieve the job promotion by looking and investing into the cake. 
Mm. Well, that's, yeah. it's, it's interesting as you talk about this kind of process that you're talking about here, because to me, one of the points where people will probably have to really be ultra aware is that in that moment of finding love is to realize that I'm giving up the icing. You know, yes. that, that, like yes. some people are going to find like, a, like they're kind of finding the passionate life's a really interesting thing because. If I find a passionate life in an area, like for example, some industries just don't get paid that well. Fitness is a good example. There's not much money in fitness. Yeah. Now, people who work in fitness, uh, you tend to find people who work in it for a long time can often get a bit kind of dis- disillusioned because they, they actually have got a passionate life, but yes. the financial rewards of the industry is not that great. So they start to get jealous yes. of the financial yes. rewards of other industries. But Correct. if they went and became... Um, you know, an industry where you had to sell your soul to make money, they'd hate it. But, yes. you know, that moment and that finding my love, I also accept that that means that there won't be this icing, but that doesn't matter because I'm in my love. Correct. And the irony of it all is all of a sudden the icing comes thicker than you can deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the funniest thing too is that even though, and not, not every example, not every case, mm. but the, it's almost like the more that we disconnect from needing or, or wanting something, and actually settle into, I guess, being very grateful for what we've got in the moment and doing what we purely love and enjoy just in the now and then almost like just have the faith that tomorrow I will take care of itself if I keep doing what I'm doing for genuine reasons. Yeah. That generates everything that we need. I heard some fascinating research where it was, I think it was either $50,000 or $80,000. But once you earned that much money, it didn't matter whether you earned $80 million or $50 billion. It became meaningless. Yeah. As long as you had enough money to have these bare essentials that you and your family and bits and pieces around you needed, after that, the money became meaningless. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we, but no one knows that. They all assume that, oh, if I have 50 million, I'm going to be 50 million dollars worth of happiness. Yeah. 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 It doesn't happen like that. One thing you talk about, um, which I really loved, uh, was this kind of idea of, how do you see pressure? And, and this is very much an athlete's yeah. kind of experience. And, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, like a lot of people crack. A lot of people see themselves as failures um, yes. in, in those pressure moments in their life. And um, you want me to talk a little bit about that? Because I kind of liked the way you talked about it. I thought it was quite quite cool. Yeah, look, I, the probably the, the example for me which has really struck home was watching Novak Djokovic play Federer in the 2011 US Open. So Djokovic is two match points down after four and a half hours. And he's walking from the left hand or the backhand side, left hand side of the court to the right hand side of the court, and he's just nodding. And just he's got his bottom lip tucked up over his top lip. And he's just doing this little wee nod. And they asked him afterwards what he was thinking, and he said, Oh, had nothing to do with Federer. I was taking legally as long as I was allowed in between shots just to absorb the moment. Mm. And I went, Wow. How, if we just stop for a minute and think about what he just said. And then I remember that there was a 60-minute program recently where they talked to him about his childhood and he grew up in Serbia. That's my understanding. He grew up in Serbia when the Civil War was happening and they were bombing. So at night he'd take his blankie and pillow into the bomb shelter and he'd lie there hoping they didn't hit the tennis courts so he could play tennis the next day. And so straight away we're starting to see how his mindset, for him, of course, he, he loves winning. He loves being competitive, so he does like icing. So I'm never ever saying that we don't have those things, but it's about to get the order right, the ratio right. But in that moment for him, if we asked him what's most important, he would have answered, because this was, I guess, the short version of it, I bet he would have answered that I hit the ball as hard as I can or that I be myself. 
So he, in that moment, it wasn't about being careful and hoping Fura made a mistake, or and because it was a million dollar point. If he lost that, he's out. He gets five hundred k. If he gets through mm-hmm. to the final and then loses, he gets a million and a half. So it's a million dollar point. So for me, in that moment, when I watch him play that point, there's nothing in the way his body language looks which equals pressure in the dictionary. It's, it doesn't. That's just the, the completely different things. The way pressure is defined in the dictionary is usually with an athlete is they rush the moment they want to get it over and done with. It's uncomfortable. It hurts them. They're petrified. That was nothing what he was feeling. And it just what I built off that was the a moment of greatest importance in our life is a test. It's a test of our internal integrity about who we are and can we maintain that in that moment when it matters. It's easy to be positive and upbeat when things are going your way. Mm. It's easy. Yeah. I always want to listen. I want to see people when they hit adversity. I want to see people when the world starts to fall down around their ears when their pressure, based on the dictionary, hits because that's when we see their character. That's when we see their identity come through and how they define themselves. And so for me, the moment of our greatest opportunity, our greatest pressure should be something where we embrace that because now's the opportunity to actually see who we are. So in that moment, the whole world saw who Novak Djokovic was. They saw a man who loves playing tennis, and the most important thing to him is he hits the ball as hard as he can. So he absolutely ripped a forehand return from Federer's serve and smashed it and went on to win that game in the match. And so it's like for me... The pressure moment is something that we should run towards because it's every, it's everything because they don't come along that often. No. And so it should be the opportunity where you can actually go, shivers, man, I'm actually going to see how I tick. I'm actually going to see what defines my life because I'm going to see it right now and embrace that moment and want that moment and then essentially what Bruce Lee talks about is honestly express ourselves. And that's why I love the base jumpers, man. They just stand on the edge of that cliff and they're all in. Yeah, so yeah they are all in, aren't they? They are all in, man, because if they're not all in, they'll die. Yeah. And so a pressure moment, I actually love that metaphor because that's a pressure moment. When you get to the edge of a pressure moment, you then have to decide, am I all in this moment or am I a coward and I'm only just 50% in? Because if you're all in, then we'll actually get to see who you are and express yourself. There's nothing – you've just taken failure out of the question. You're just taking, sorry, you've taken failure out of the equation. There's no question now whether you'll succeed or not. You've just succeeded before you even act mm. because you're going to be all in and you're going to empty your heart, you empty your tank, give your heart and soul. And guess what? You'll either win it or you won't, but we'll see who you are. And the, the growth that you make if you can approach it that way, it actually makes it like an addiction. Those pressure moments become something that you want. And then it's no longer pressure. It's actually redefined. You can't now define or call that pressure moment anymore. It's it's almost like it's a, the elixir. It's almost like the moment of life. Mm. We actually get to live fully and unpolluted in that moment. And they think that's the key thing is once you start living like that, you die because you, you, you get old real fast. <laughs> life just races by, man, because all of a sudden you start hunting the moment. And that's not how most people live. They actually want to avoid that moment. They actually want to escape it or if they're in it, they want to escape it and get away out of it as fast as they can or they want to avoid those pressured moments because it makes them feel uncomfortable because they start to frame it up as being a, a moment of whether, whether they'll, they'll fail and be judged. Well, it's interesting. Like I, um, yeah, I love, I love your analogy of that and, and I, and I, I – I, you know, it's like I just think upon my own reflection here is like, like I remember some races where I did triathlon for years, and so I remember yes. some races where 
you know, I didn't get the result, but I had the race, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, yeah. and you go to the finish line, and sure, I may not get the number I wanted, but I just didn't care because it's like, yeah. man, in my toughest moment, I was there, you know. And like, yeah. You know, and that's that what... was that was the appeal. It wasn't that, you know, what it was. You know, sure, if I got the result, that would have been cool, but it actually wasn't that important Great. because in that moment, Great. I was like. I, I went there. I, I went to that place, and yes. you know, and, and that's an exciting place to go to, isn't it? Well, that's where we're that's where we're truly alive. Mm. Yeah, and you've, what your little example right there that highlights everything in one moment. That's it. What you just see it is everything. Mm. It doesn't matter because in that moment you have achieved the greatest level or depth of success you can. Mm. And ironically, the lack of icing almost made it more enhanced. Yeah. Well, you just have respect for the people in front of you, don't you? It's like, you know, they were better for me on the day, but, you know, like I still did my best. It's like. Well, and the irony is, too, even if you had won that, the winning of it would have detracted from the way that you reflected on the cake of the race. Mm. And Mm. so it would have polluted the space, and you would have missed out on really identifying the depth that you took yourself in that moment to get the result. And that's what happens, I reckon, is the icing. It just covers it over, and then we move on, and we've missed the moment of actually finding out more about who we are. Well, one thing I'm, I'm curious about is people age. You know, like I'm coming up forty, and and you kind of um, it's almost like sometimes people are courageous when they're young, but then as the older yeah. they get, they get safer and yeah. that, that courage. You know, because we can. It's almost like we've found our place in the world, and that's where we'll stay. And, and yeah. it's like because we know this, and that kind of courage stops and. That evolution, that seeking of that higher self kind of goes because safety stops us. Is this something you experience? I think it's a social thing. You do? Yeah, I think we're socially almost um, conditioned to believe that once we hit 40, um, we had hit those middle years, we're moving towards retirement. Just all the words they start to use about that period of time immediately generate a, a psychology or a mindset which matches it. Mm. They don't talk about 40 as being your opportunity now to adventure in the world in a way that you never could because you've got resources and time. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it that way, but we should. Mm-hmm. You know, our children get, so my children will be another five years, they'll be like living their own lives. So actually, you've got to start talking about life in a way which reflects the way the 20-year-olds talk about it because if we don't, people start to talk about it like they're dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and funnily and it, enough, they start bloody dying. Yeah, and society kind of puts that context on you, don't they? You know, like, it's funny, if you get injured now, like, you know, I've always pushed my body hard, and if I get injured now, the comment is, oh, you're getting old. And it's yes. like, well, I've always got injured. Like, I pushed my body yes. hard. It's, it's, it's just yes. injuries are part of the deal. You know, but yeah. that context gets put upon you, doesn't it? Exactly. Like, I've just taught, I've learned to ski in the last two years just to find another edge where I can push myself to fear. Yeah. And so I've got an extreme skiing mentor and a race mentor. I rip up the mountain and I just can't wait. And I see people my age going to have a coffee. Yeah. And I go, where are you going? And they go, oh, I'm going to have a coffee. I need a rest. And I go, why do you need a rest? Look, it's a beautiful day. Yeah. And I'm trying to charge around. I end up skiing with guys who are about 20 and they're looking at me like I'm some sort of old crazy dude. Yeah. Which you are. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's almost like the way they look at you is it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And for me, is who cares I look 43? Who cares I'm starting to get looking really old? It doesn't it's, – it's, it's another construct we put in that place. Oh, there's a group of Americans I saw it in a, a um, Time magazine or was it maybe a National Geographic where they're making a, an informed decision or choice to use steroids and say hit over 75. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they and they some of them laughed and they said, you know, they said, oh, you could get cancer, and they said, 
mate, I'm 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're basically making a decision that for the last five years of their life or whatever it is, they're going to use drugs to help keep the testosterone high in their bodies so they live fully and have as great a physical capacity as they can. And these guys are ripped, man. Yeah. They, on the pictures, they look like, they're, obviously, their faces are old, but their bodies are like, holy moly. And so that was, for, obviously, that's a, huge, that's a huge step to take. But what it really highlighted for me, again, is the way that we construe our world is based on how we think about the world. They weren't thinking, I'm, I'm getting close to death. They were going, I'm going, to make, I'm going to burn like a bright candle and make the most of my last years as I can. But I reckon that, that's what we've got to do with, irrespective of our age. And so that's the bit for me. Once we, those middle years that you talk about, I reckon it is. I reckon it's a social construct that we then play out and we live it because that's what we, we un, unconsciously have learned that that's how the world ticks. So therefore we follow it like a sheep. But there are examples out there where the people who aren't like that and they've, they've just realized it, that that's actually not true. Mm. And so it's an opportunity like it's, I, I, I want to live, I, it's almost like at the moment I'm trying to live my adventures through my daughters. And people go, oh, that's, that's enmeshment, that's really unhealthy, they've got to live their own lives. And I go to hell with that, man, my daughters are going to be 18, 19 years old in five years and they'll be probably living around the world and I won't see them. Mm. I want to spend as if they want to go skiing. I'm going to learn to go skiing. The other one came in the day and said, "I want to learn to surf." I'm petrified of the ocean, and I go, "Okay, let's learn to surf." <laughs> <laughs> and if that means I have to chuck the bloody surfboards on top of the truck and take her out there to do surf life saving, then that's what I'm going to do for the next five years. Mm. And of course, she'll still have her friends, but I'm going to be living my life too. And that means I get to spend the odd more odd day with my daughters, which is what the cake's actually about anyway. That's that's what I'm going to do, and if I you know, one day I will be old, but until I wake up and I can't do something, I'm not old. Well, just on a personal level, what are your struggles then? Like, and and like, you know, because it seems like you are definitely living what you preach. Um, yeah. And your attitude is pretty good, but you know, I sometimes wonder. You know, like I know my position. You almost the world perceives you that you're perfect if you get put in certain positions, and it's far from true because we all have our struggles. Yeah. Um, and I think it's almost important that we do show you know, the things that we need to work on within ourselves. And so when you reflect upon yourself, where are the th- where's the growth within you? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point because it's the crazy thing is it's massive. Like when I was 29, as a training clinical psychologist, I was having more panic attacks than people who come and see me with anxiety. Really? They'd, be there, they'd be sitting there telling me about their anxiety and I'm thinking, man, there's nothing you can be doing. And it was. I was I was in a place where if I hadn't had the realization through my training about what was happening to me and then had the tools about understanding that, it would have done me in, man. I would have ended up in psychiatric care. I'm like I'm really clear that that's where I was heading. And even my supervisor back then said, David, I'm not sure whether you're safe to practice. And I just looked at him and went, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, man. <laughs> So that was a, that was a real difficult time. My, my late twenties, man, they were a struggle. It was it was seriously it was seriously hard, and and that all stemmed from a deep deep fear of being um, inadequate or judged or not liked um, or people not liking me or not fitting in. Like I'm really clear, that's what it was. That was my deepest fear: is that people actually wouldn't like who I was. I would be seen as th- thick or whatever it might be. So I had many derivatives. And even today, my greatest struggle is to free up from what people think about me. 
and what worrying about whether I'm doing a good job or worried about um, whether they like me. So it's still incredibly powerful. Like it's, it's abated. I don't have panic attacks anymore, <laughs> which is fantastic because essentially all I did was where am I Where am I scaredest? Where am I having those panic attacks? And then I said, what's the most courageous thing to do? And I went and chucked myself in the deep end mm-hmm. and then basically approached those things. And, and, and then it's been psychology speak, it's called graduated exposure. So I just I went and just, a, you know, confronted them really and then they got me through it and as it does but I still notice the remnants of it now and so for example like I swear a little bit yeah and when I when the when the environment's right and the and the groups are right it's all out I I will just use it as an opportunity to be all in yep and then sometimes people give me feedback and they say man because with my daughters they have no the, the, the worst word in our family with my children growing up has been the word stupid yep so when we use the word stupid in our family, it's like, whoa, <laughs> that's a really bad word. So they have no idea their daddy's like this. And, and then people will say to me, and some of those groups, they'll say, oh, I think you should stop swearing. And I'll say to them, if I stop swearing, I'll start caring. And if I start caring, I'm going to have panic attacks again. Mm-hmm. I've got to make sure that I keep the swearing up in the right place at the right time because it's my ongoing little booster that I give myself to say to my head, David, I don't actually give a shit. Yep. I've got to stop caring what people think because deep, deep down, I'm a bloody good husband. I work as hard as I can to love my wife. I try my best to be a good dad and I'm trying my hardest to make the world a better place. Yeah. After that, nothing matters. Yeah. Whether people like me or not, at the end of the day, they're not going to be there when I pass away. Mm-hmm. But I want my daughters to come around with their boyfriends. <laughs> I want my daughters to come around and say, Daddy, we want you to be there for the birth of our children. I want my wife to grow old with me. That's what matters. And so until I can break free from my fears of upsetting people, I'm never going to be pure. So I've, 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 I've got to keep doing that. Like at my weekly schedule now, I keep finding places to scare the shit out of myself because unless I'm scared, I'm complacent. Unless I'm scared, I've become comfortable. And if I become comfortable, it's more than likely I'm going to be transgressing and falling back into all my old habits, which is worry about what other people think. So I keep setting my week up each week to be scared in my own professional development, which is through my mentoring. I push myself to be scared in the way of certain places about where I really care about whether people like me or not. So it might be a boss or a coach that I want to be involved with. I'll actually use those opportunities to go along. And when they say, what do you think, David? I just go, blah, 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 blah. And they look at me like, really? And I'll just say exactly what's on my mind, even though it could be right way off the planet. I force myself to say it mm. and, and then just get on with it. And so I'm, it's almost like a weekly thing. It's no different than physical fitness Mental fitness and mental toughness is something that needs to be worked as actively, possibly even more actively, because it's it's like a, I reckon a physical muscle is it's it, it will still be there for us if we need, but the mental muscle, it's crazy. If you if if you if you fail to feed it or train it, it can regress so fast. So if you're living from courage. Um, for 50 days and then one day you live from fear and self-doubt that just does you in mm-hmm. and so it's it's really important that we wherever we're vulnerable we approach those things I remember when I was really working hard on pushing through my panic I, I used to go and speak in the public speaking square in Pukekohe and give public speeches I'd, ra- I'd go in early in the morning because there wasn't so many people and I'd be, I'd be having panic attacks in the way because I knew what I was going to do and I'd stand up on the little talking squ- circle that they had there in the public uh, civic centre and like for example I'd give a talk on plastic milk bottles I have a couple of plastic milk bottles and I'd say the reason that we abuse children in this world is because we don't pick up our rubbish and I'd give this whole speech on it <laughs> <laughs> 
And then I'd drop down from there. My heart would be panicking. I'd go back to my truck and I'd be saying to myself, I'll learn not to care. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd drive home. And then I, if I'm working with offenders, I'd go and at least say it's a child youth and family. I'd sit in the first meetings with those families and I'd say, before we start, I just need to say it. It's probably likely we're going to end up in conflict today. And so I'm actually, because that would be one of my greatest fears is that I, people wouldn't like me or that I'd upset them. Mm. And so then I'd, I'd say, well, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, I'm actually committing that if you say stuff that I don't agree with the way you parent, I'm going to challenge you on that. Is that okay? And they'd say, yeah, of course, we want you to be honest. And that was a crazy thing is it just frees you up. Yeah. But I used to drive on the motorway slow as well just to annoy people, just to learn how to get over my fear of upsetting them. So yeah. I'd do little things all the time. But even now sometimes I'll just chuck some of those things back into my weekly schedule to push back into that space of where I'm afraid of upsetting people or afraid of being judged and go and do it anyway. Mm. And, and yeah, I, I I make it quite an important ritual each week to do two or three things like that, as well as pursue um, areas in life as a metaphor for growth. So, for example, you can get quite comfortable being a dad and a, and a husband. So it's it's really hard to keep finding the edge in that area. Yeah. And so it's usually a professional edge or a hobby that that's the edge that we find that helps us really stretch our. Our, our mind and be uncomfortable. Mm. So, for example, if someone's in finances, for example, if they if they want to improve their financial situation, that's who's their mentor and 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 how are they doing their investing and where are they investing each week that's making them feel really nervous and, and, and scared because that's the edge that's going to help them grow. And so, skiing for me, that's become my edge is that you know you just go steeper and then you get scared again and you just go <laughs> steeper. <coughs> And so that's why I've got the mentor and I've done the first level mountaineering course. So it's just trying to find that edge because when I'm scared, I then ask myself, so how am I also like this in other areas of my life? So it becomes the parallel. So the vulnerabilities, my vulnerabilities are really deep, incredibly powerful. They're obviously nowhere near as powerful as they now were when I was in my 20s. But it's ironically, I've actually turned it around and made it my greatest strength because if I hadn't had those... I wouldn't be talking to you now. Mm. The funny thing was, if I hadn't had those in my 20s, I probably would be somewhere in North America now on a guiding service or working with skiing or something ridiculous. I would have lived a different life. Mm. So it's actually, I'm not sure whether it's calm or fate or whatever it is, but that struggle, my personal struggle psychologically, and everyone has them, if we can turn and embrace them and spend some time in them figuring out who we are and how we tick and then use it as a friend, it becomes the red flag which helps keep us on track. I also think uh, the, the one thing it gives us is is a sense of trust in our darkest moments. You know, yeah, like, you yeah. Know, you know, that in those true. moments when we struggle, it's like, no, I know where I need to go now. Instead of yes, be destructive or, or hurt my correct. world, or, or you correct. know, it's that kind of fundamental sense of I'm going to be okay. Just trust yes. the process or whatever it is that, that makes correct. you get through this. Correct. And then we find the then we find the power to make our own happiness. Mm, yeah, because we we become very centered and quiet inside, and we can sit with a cup of tea and spend the morning just reflecting quietly. And it's it's crazy. We no longer need the external um, things or people to make us happy anymore. Mm, mm. Yeah, we can find that internally, and that's man. Once you get there, that's pretty powerful with regards to then how you can open yourself selves up to love others. Yeah. So yeah. your children and your wife, for example, your husband or whatever it is. And and that's when I reckon all of a sudden we've found the meaning of life. Yeah, well it's interesting going back to my, my my kind of mentor who I was talking about earlier in England and 
is that whole how do you look at others in the world? Are they a threat or are, are you helping them move forward? Yes. You know, and, um, and, and you know, th- that's what I love is that kind of that place where I get to myself where it's like, oh, I'm just here to help others blossom. You know, they're not a threat to my existence, my experience in the world. And um, <clears throat> that's a much healthier outlook than everyone's against me or, or they're trying to restrict me or, you know, that kind of that mindset that actually works against you. Correct. Generosity is an incredibly powerful value and ironically it creates so much abundance. Yeah. I remember the guy called Steve Seibold who wrote the book 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class, I think that's what it was called. And I remember listening to one of his podcasts and they asked him, he said, they asked him why he'd written his book on all of his secrets and then he wrote a coaching manual to go with it so people could actually know how to, what questions to ask. And I can't remember exactly what he said but what I took from it is the moment you are generous you progress yourself massively forward in time. So you give things away, and then as soon as you give things away, you've actually progressed them and you progress you. Mm. And so there's nothing other than good that comes from being generous. And like I think I remember too, he, he was making the point that you don't be generous to get. Yeah. You just it's, it's, be generous to be generous. Yeah. So it's not, it's not I'm only doing it because I get a benefit. It's actually I'm just Correct. doing it because it's good for the world. Correct. Like, there will be a benefit, but that's not the motivator. Yeah, exactly. And another another one was Steve Covey, where he and his I listened to his audios. His dad wrote a book. He spent his life writing one book for sixteen people, and no one knew who wrote the book. He just wrote this book and then went and delivered it to the sixteen people via post or in their mailbox, whatever it was. Wow! And no one knew who did it. And I just went, man, that's amazing. Wow. Spending your whole life writing one book for sixteen people to read. It was something on like some sort of something to do with council or something. So it was a really out there topic yep. about making the community better. But that was like a, that's an ultimate gesture of generosity. Mm. And so we've got, to, I reckon we've got to hold to that because from, from that, I think everything else flourishes. Hey, um, you know, I've, I've taken an hour of your time. Maybe just, just one last question. Um, just for those listening, you know, because my audience obviously kind of knows what I'm about and uh, yeah. at the same time, but you know, I, I suppose for people who are, Thinking, you know, I, you know, I'm sure they got a lot from today's conversation because you, you've got some great stuff there. What would be kind of your? I know it's hard to say one message, but you know, what would be your key kind of thing to take away? Um, we need to redefine. I reckon what we see as success, mm. and we need to redefine what was considered to be most important in our lives, because that. I reckon is the very core of our minds or the very core of psychology because deep, deep down we all have a definition about what success is mm. and it's that definition that then allows us or then leads to us to evaluate our progress or our day or how others around us are behaving and mm. whether we're happy or not. Mm. And while we have success equals outcome or success equals icing, I think we're doomed and until we can actually make success and the most important thing equal the cake or the process, which is like you defined what you described before with your own um, tri- triathlon race, mm-hmm. we're, we're actually limiting ourselves and those around us. And that, that's got to be the that's got to be the core thing. You know, like a farming metaphor for me is if you drive down the middle of a road on a dairy farm, and they've got two identical farms, the farm on the left on the top of their strategic plan. They've got success equals fat, happy cows. 
And on the other side of the road, the plant the farm's got on the top of their strategic plan, success equals milk, fat, solids, or productivity and profit. Those two farms are going to be fundamentally different farms. The farm on the left with fat, happy cows will have great water quality. They'll have long grass. The cows will be looking in great nick. There'll be fewer cows, better quality milk. You go to dinner in that house and the husband and wife will be cuddling. The TV won't be on. They'll be playing probably coast old-time music. The children will be laughing. The house will be a mess. It'll just be a beautiful place for growing children. The other side of the road will be tense and quiet and tidy and the farmer will be looking over the paddocks, stressed about the payouts. The husband and wife won't be cuddling. That all comes back to how they define success. So we've got to do the same in our own lives, whether we're farmers or not. We've got to ask ourselves, how do we define success in our families as a dad, as a husband, um, as, a, as an athlete, as a businessman? And, and that's, that's, going to, oh, that's so powerful. That's going to define what people will then say about you when you die. Mm. It's that powerful. So that's probably, probably the key message. The book's Unleashing Greatness. Now, it's not on Kindle yet because I've got a bit, there are lots of people overseas will listen to this. Will, it, will you get on Kindle or ebook eventually? It's, it was, I talked to the publisher about that and they said because it's a sort of a, a um, workbook format, yep. it makes it harder to put it onto an ebook or Kindle. So I'm not sure how we. We might have to just adjust the structure of the book to get it on there. Yeah, because you can get it from New Zealand. Um, yep. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. <clears throat> um, it's a really good book, highly recommend it. Obviously, you guys listen to David for the last hour, and he's got a lot of wisdom to share. And as he's saying, it is kind of a workbook, so it's actually about you working on yourself, which is really great yes. as well. Um, so you can get it. Um, it's just, you know, if eventually if it does become an ebook, I'll flick me an email, David, and I'll just let everyone know. But um, thank you so much for your time, mate. It just You're so passionate about what you do, and your message is so great and you're obviously helping a lot of people you know in your own community and in the work you're doing so keep up the great work mate and thank you so much for your time cheers i really enjoyed it thanks very much Now, the book he's got is i think unleashing i can't remember the name off the top of my head but we were talked about in an interview i'll put a link to that on i am talk now admittedly I'm not sure if you'll be able to get it on Amazon at this stage, so you probably have to get it from New Zealand, and there would be a big shipping cost. It's kind of a workbook, mm-hmm. but it's very good. Cool. Yeah, yeah he's he's he, um, yeah, he's a bloody, bloody good interview. Nice. So there you go. Check check it out. Okay, Jumbo, uh, what's your goss? What's my goss? Yeah, email in there. Oh, because it's public. We're still on our public holiday over here. It's within. It's uh, seven twenty-one on public holiday yeah. still working away sun's coming up but all my reminders because I catch up Monday's my big catch up day with athletes oh is it <clears throat> and so all my reminders are coming up saying right you got to talk to this person you got to talk to this uh. person I'm just sent an email saying sorry not there today Adrian I'll catch up with you tomorrow Adrian here actually I caught up with you about three weeks ago what do you mean how often do you catch up with Adrian no I caught up with him because we're recording this oh, now. Oh, okay. Today's yeah, show yeah, is uh, yeah, exactly. June 21st, yeah, and I caught up okay. with Adrian back on June 6th. That's right. Yep. He got there, Adrian. He yes. got there. He did a service job. He's a good man. Um, Bevan, my goss is I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm pretty bloody happy about it. I'm going to France. I've spent the last, I don't know how long have I spent, probably the last nine months specifically preparing for a camp, which is kind of funny. Rather than preparing for a race, specifically yeah, preparing for a motivated. camp. I've been mean, highly motivated. I've been following some very good structured training, especially late, you know, sort of pumping out 12 to 14 hours a week doing, yeah, it's basically been preparing for 
a race, you know, yeah. going out there specifically doing hill sessions to, to get myself ready for it. Don't have any racing planned after it. Just want to go over there and... You, think <clears> you might just do a sneaky race? Sorry? You might come back and go... Oh, I did make an inquiry about a race. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, you could make the inquiry for Belinda, don't you? Yep. It's always got to be a payoff. Um, but just want to go over there and actually ride the climbs and enjoy riding some of the most famous climbs in the world and actually be able to go over there and see see what I can actually do on them. Every, every other time I've done, or not, most of the other times I've done a camp, it's always been as a preparation for something else. Yep. So we went into Canada. Yeah, I was looking forward to it and seeing some amazing scenery and doing some cool cool stuff over there, but it was a springboard into Kona. And then when we did Italy, it was going and leading into Rote. Whereas this time, <clears throat> it's all about the camp. So it's going to be wicked times. But the thing is for you on those camps is kind of it's hard work for you. So... I've got a really good support crew in place this time. So we've got the guys from Pyrenees Multisport. Oh, if they're you, running, are they? Yeah, if you ever want to go to do a camp in the Pyrenees, oh, check it great. out, pyreneesmultisport.com. Oh, they named the camp in the names. Ian and Julie. Ian, that's right, they're great. And the, the thing with them is they rock up and, yeah. and they've got two vans, they've got everything. Whereas when we turn up in Canada, we've got to go, right, we need this, this and this. Yeah, you got to coordinate and, all um, And so that, then it, that takes off a huge pressure. So hopefully... I'll still be doing a bit. I'll be keeping the points updated and stuff. So, guys, make sure if you want to follow us, go to our Facebook page, Epic Camp Facebook page, <coughs> or go to epiccamp.com, and I'll have some links off there, off to various people's blogs that people might be keeping. I'll be keeping a blog somewhere as well, and uh, but I'll be posting a lot of pictures this time up on, on Facebook and stuff, and I may even have to get up. I think, I, I think I've got an Instagram account. Um, so yeah, because Belinda sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be awesome. Mont Ventoux on day one, which is going to be epic. What, what, the question I have, John, is are you worried about turning 40? Because actually, that's the big event. Yes, I do turn, turn 40 during the camp. Uh, not worried about it whatsoever. Doing 100 100s on my 40th birthday. And a 50-metre outdoor pool in Morzine. Hopefully the sun's beating down. Got to remember to put the sunscreen on when you're swimming in outdoor pools. Oh, true. We, I got burnt to a cinder and... Kona last time we were over there and I swam for about an hour and a half or something like that without any sunscreen on my back yeah. so it's a tough life it's a hard nut life for you mate Bevan you're back from your holiday or you're, you're going to be just about coming back from your holiday yep coming back I'll be what? very relaxed just a question Joe's just walked past the room okay. what would you do here we go here we go if, Joe listen up if you, you're coming back and they go oh hello Mr Isles we'd like to upgrade you to business class today oh only one person only one person no, I wouldn't do it you wouldn't do it. Oh, I'd give it to Joe. You'd give it to Joe. Yeah. Because Joe doesn't oh. like flying, do you, babe? Have you looked on stuff this morning? Don't look on stuff this morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's good of you. No, you can't, you can't. You can't greet no, you up your partner. You couldn't. I'd give it to Joe. That's very good of you. Joe, would you take it? Yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> it's a love. I think I'd get the exact same response from Belinda if I did that. Yeah, because I'm a better flyer. I don't actually mind flying. I actually kind of like mm. it, even like, because we were talking about last night, we're like, we're going, we're leaving, and Joe's going, you know, for me, getting on the planes when I get to relax, because it's been a pretty busy period leading up to this, and even today's going to be full on. So three, three weeks ago, this was full on. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> getting on the plane is the moment where I chill. It's kind of, yes, mm. you know, getting to the airport, now I can just chill. Whereas for Joe, she doesn't really get to chill until you land, because mm. she's not, you're not a good flyer, are you, babe? She just doesn't enjoy it. And so, um, so I'm, for me... I'm, I'm like, yeah, I enjoy flying. Yeah, I enjoy it. For me, it's one of the times in life where you just totally relax because yeah. you, you can't do anything. Someone's serving they bring you, you food. They bring you food. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. You can food. watch crap movies Great. and stuff for hours. I'll have another free drink, please. Yeah, <laughs> bring the button. 
That's Have you got drunk on the plane? No. That's one of the great disappointments about flying is when you go on those budget airlines, you don't get anything. Yeah, I know. It's like, I know it's a lot cheaper, but it's kind of nice. And, and I went, I flew. We're such cheap asses. I went to, I went to, <laughs> you and I hopeless. <laughs> I went to Australia a couple of weeks ago. And who did I fly with those? Who did I fly to in Australia, babe? Oh, Virgin on the way there. Mm. But because it was bought, they Someone else paid ticket and they bought me the work, so I had everything. Mm. And you know when you're on the old cheap flight and people have got the, the service mm. and you, you're kind of justifying why you're full not to do it. I mean, you're, you know, you're wise not to do it. But I have to admit, it was quite nice to get the service on the budget flight. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. we're so cheap. You and I are hopeless, aren't we? Yes. Yep. <clears throat> now. <clears throat> oh, now. Hopefully. You're right. You're losing the plot. Hopefully by the time we've got this rolling is the, the rote thing might be happening. So if you're thinking about Potentially wanting to do right next oh, year. Oh, so we're announcing it now? No, we're not announcing Well, it. you kind of are. I am, but I've got three weeks to sort it out. So by the time this comes out, okay, hopefully. Okay, so there's a chance if the boys could thinking, be going to vote. If you're thinking you want to do right next year, or you oh, no, I think we did talk about it on show. We, we, we have talked about it, but, but, but the wheels are starting to move. I've, I've been planning planning routes and stuff like that. So we're thinking about doing a camp? Yeah, but before right next year. So I'm going to have to train again. Well, you don't have to do the race, but you, you want to do the riding. You don't have to do the camp. Yeah, you do the camp. Yeah. So we're basically looking at doing about a, a week-long camp before, Germany, before the race. And wrote. Well, this is where the, the debate's going to happen. It kind of depends. John, there's no debate for me. You're organising it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, yes. I was looking at different different avenues of getting to wrote and potentially maybe starting in Prague. Oh, wow. And riding through the Czech Oh, we've got to go to Prague. But then the, then the logistics are a little more tricky. Well, the other alternative is to start maybe down in Zurich and then ride through the castle. The question is, the can we hook area? up entries for the people doing the camp for road? Yes, that's the whole idea. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So if you've always wanted to do road, yeah. this is the way to do it. This do is unconfirmed at this stage. Oh, we've locked it. Lock it in. <laughs> Block out the dates. Yeah. But if you want to do road... But it's going to be one of those ones where it wouldn't be an A race because you're going to camp the week before. Oh, no, 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 no. So we're not going to do a crazy amount of training. It'd be like, you know, do a few days of sort of 70 to 100 Ks. Okay. Um, so it'd be but good, maybe good for people who don't want to do the race hard, we could have some options as well. Mm. You're doing the race, aren't you? John's doing the race. He's talking it down, but you're doing it. Come this on. It's all unconfirmed at this stage. <laughs> I'm going to put money on it. Oh, you know what, John? There's an 87% chance you're doing this race. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's a reference from three weeks ago. If you're thinking about it, you've always wanted to do it. Keep thinking and start. If you've got to start negotiating with um, the partner, you know, now might be just to drop a few little subtle hints. No, because you can say, let's have a time some couple of days in Prague, babe. Just leave it there and leave you it. You know, the one thing that the, the scuttling my efforts to plan this camp, there's no street view in Germany. Oh, you because German hates Germany. They hate Google. They <sighs> hate Google. And Google hates them. So there's no yeah, street view. The Germans are really against privacy and privacy laws. Oh, you silly Germans. God. <laughs> I love the Germans. My time in Germany has been amazing. Yeah, Rote's fantastic. I love all the Germans over there. Yeah, but it's planning Epic Camp France has helped enormously. Just by being able to do street view. Street view. You go into town. You go. Oh, I know we've got to turn in that town there. I can zone in on that roundabout and say this is what the sign says. Okay. Follow that sign. Yeah. Uh, in Germany, I can't even look at the streets. I'm going. Is that a busy street or not? Is there an app that can direct you? Like I know you got like MapQuest or you've got like directions. But is there an app, you know, but you have to program them in yourself. Is there an app where you can go, here's a route, send it to 20 people, and when they're on that route, it'll direct them? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There there's is. that. But you can't, yeah, yeah absolutely there Do is. Do you use it on camps? Absolutely. Oh, it's a lifesaver. Yeah, because yeah, back in the day, you gave us a map. Mm. Piece of no, paper. No, no, <laughs> See great. you later. So, yeah, if you're thinking about route, or you've always wanted to do route, we'll only have probably 20 spaces. and oh, it'll be amazeballs. And it'll be awesome. And the boys, and, and we'll have full support and stuff like that. So it'll be arrive wherever we arrive, and then you just and then we're chill games out, night. relax. If I'm we'll doing games, games night, night. Yeah. yeah, 
So it's going to be good. That's why I bring to it as games, not. Yeah. I haven't got. I haven't. I'm. I'm. I haven't got authorization yet. A to whether we're doing the camp. And B, no, it works perfectly for me, John. I know it does. We need to have to work because we're, we're doing a honeymoon next year. I know. And we were going to Europe. And then the idea of doing this would take my honeymoon afterwards. Victoria, if you're listening, let's make it work. Let's make this work. It's mm. a win-win. Yeah. I saw Victoria. She did the half marathon. Great. She had a good finish too. Gave a bit of love crossing the finish line. We'll see you next week. You'll be in France. Yep. I'll be back in, back in my home. I'm Russ. I'm you know, Train hard. Train smart. Kick, Kick hard. hard.